Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Felicia O'Connor. Felicia is a senior counsel out of Foley's Detroit office with a practice focused on labor and employment. We kick off our discussion with Felicia reflecting on growing up in Santa Cruz, California, attending the University of California at Berkeley for undergrad, and eventually attending the University of Michigan Law School. And I say eventually because like many other guests on the path in the practice, Felicia's career had a few twists and turns before she decided to become a lawyer. So I have her reflect on that time, and then I get her to discuss why Foley as well as why a labor and employment practice. Felicia and I also have a really interesting discussion about the steep learning curve that new lawyers must close in the first few years of their career as they learn how to be a lawyer. And after we have that discussion, I then get Felicia to talk about her day-to-day practice as a labor and employment attorney, and we discuss a new role for Felicia, which is as chair of Foley's Associates Committee. And as you'll soon hear, Foley's Associates Committee is a bit unique as compared to other large law firms. So we talk about that new responsibility that she's taken on, and then we end the show by me getting Felicia to give some wonderful insight on the importance of cultivating resilience early in one's career. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Felicia O'Connor. Felicia, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to start this how I start all of these, which is asking you to give your professional introduction. Sure. It's good to be here. My name is Felicia O'Connor. I'm a senior counsel in the Detroit office. I work in the labor and employment group, which obviously falls under litigation. I've always been in that group and summered with Foley. And there's not necessarily a real specialization because it's Michigan. We do a lot of traditional labor work, which I really enjoy. So if there's any specialization, it's probably that. But yeah, that's my brief introduction. Well, we are going to unpack all of that, but before I pressed record, I was telling you how I'm particularly excited about this episode because you also went to the University of Michigan. We didn't quite overlap, but we were close there. And yes, this is the director of diversity and inclusion saying she is slightly biased in favor of those who attended the same law school as her. So we will get to that part of your story. But first, let's start somewhat at the beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? I actually was born in Boston. All my extended family is in Boston. And then when I was six, we moved to California. So really, I feel like I grew up in California. I don't really claim any sort of Boston roots, except that's where all my family is. But so I grew up in a little hippie beach town called Santa Cruz, little surfer town in the central coast of California. That's so funny. When you said hippie beach town, I was trying to guess as to what that might be. And then you said Santa Cruz. And I was like, that is the stereotype I have. I don't think I've ever visited. And it's interesting, though, because For you, knowing that you're in the Detroit office right now and you went to Michigan for law school, we have a little gap to close to figure out how it is your life brought you to where you were. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit of just what life was like growing up in Santa Cruz. Let's say I found you in, I don't know, late elementary school, early middle school. What were you up to or what kind of kid were you? 
So where I grew up in Santa Cruz is up in the Redwood Mountains up above town. So they're sort of in town is real the beach. And it's like I said, it's kind of a little surf town where I grew up is sort of up above the university UCSC and it's Redwood Forest. There actually was this awful devastating fire there last year where a bunch of families that I grew up with lost their homes. But regardless, back then when I was in elementary school, my elementary school was up there in the mountains. And then for middle school or junior high, I came down into Santa Cruz. So, I mean, type of kid I was, I was probably, you know, admittedly goody two shoes, real follower type of kid. But it really was a super great place to grow up. My mom was a midwife. And so she was sort of like clued into, you know, Santa Cruz kind of like, that's why I call it a hippie beach town, because those are my people. Those are the people I grew up with. Did you have any siblings? Yep. I have an older sister and a younger brother. So I am the middle. And so give me a lot to not ask more about your mom, because I think that's really interesting. I mean, I just imagine the sorts of maybe, I don't know what the word would be, particularly given in Santa Cruz, but like that, I don't know, more like natural focus, body awareness sort of dynamic is the household I would guess you grew up in. Very true. And my mom, actually, she was a lay midwife, which is sort of unlicensed and hadn't gone to school when we were in Massachusetts, moved to California. And my dad was like, you know, you're going to get us all arrested. You got to go get a license. And so she went to midwifery school. And then she was one of the first midwives to get admitting privileges or privileges at one of the local hospitals. And they didn't want her to the doctors all sort of banned against her as a midwife and didn't want to give her privileges. And so she ended up I can't remember if she actually sued or if her boss had to like threaten to sue the hospital under an antitrust violation because it was, you know, a monopoly of doctors essentially and they wouldn't let the midwife in. So she had that going on legally. How cognizant of of that were you, by the way? Because I'm wondering if that at all was sort of your exposure to like advocacy or anything like that. I'm just wondering if there's any connections there. Yeah, I certainly knew it was going on. I was relatively young. At that time, I did not think I was going to be a lawyer. I know there are people who just that's their whole life plan and they knew it from birth or whatever. And that's not me. You know, you kind of spoke about the gap between California and Michigan. It's like a long winding road to get to where we ended up. But I remember thinking about it at the time and thinking, well, that's cool. You know, I mean, it wasn't cool that she had to sue. It would have been better if she <laughs> just got privileges. But it sounds like she prevailed, which is really neat. Although now I do want to ask a little bit about your father, only because we, we dove into what your mother's profession was. But tell me about your father. So my dad worked in high tech, which is why we moved to the Bay Area. I mean, Santa Cruz isn't exactly the Bay Area, but a little south of there in the early 80s because he got a job in Silicon Valley. And so he traveled a ton when I was a kid, was sort of like, you know, the dad who, where is he this week? I don't even know. In Nashville or Calgary or wherever on the road. Yeah. So he worked in tech. But his family's all in Boston, too. Like my mom's family, my dad's family, they're all Boston people. Well, and then taking it back to you, you mentioned you said more of a goody two-shoes. So in terms of interests or hobbies, is that reading? What falls under goody two-shoes? There you go. (laughs) Yeah, I did read a lot. I'm trying to remember what my hobbies were. Sports were never my strong suit, (laughs) to say the least. That's like the understatement of the century. Now my son's super sporty and I don't know where he got it from because it, it was not me. It's hard to relate to. I have two boys and my little one's that way and I'm just like, I don't get it. I'll bring it. Okay, this, some people are going to think this is terrible, but I'm going to say it out loud on the podcast for people to hear. 
I will bring reading material to his games. Now, granted, he's only in third grade, so it's not like I'm missing <laughs> the number one score. But I, there's some parents who look at me, they're like, that's like a like a sin. Yeah, my son, he had a basketball game yesterday, and he's all convinced his coaches don't know what they're doing. And I don't know. My husband, I guess, agrees. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm not learning anything. And I was like, well, I can't help you. I, yeah, I think I'm worse than you at basketball. So yeah, I'm the same. I'm also an only child. So having two kids, and when they fight, I'm just like, why? Could you stop? I don't understand this. Okay, let's keep moving forward because, like I said, we could talk about all kinds of random things other than your pet. <laughs> but let's fast forward to, say, high school. What was your thought process for going to college and also where did you go? So I went to UC Berkeley, which wasn't too far away, probably about an hour and a half from where I grew up. And my thought process was really in high school – get as good a grades as I could get, AP classes, blah, blah, blah. And really my, I should have thought about it in a different way. In retrospect, I think, and I would give my own kids the advice to go about it a little bit differently. I just applied to all the schools that I thought were good schools in California. I didn't really have an intention to leave California. And I just went to the best one that I got into. You know, I got in, as soon as I got into Berkeley, I was like, great, that's where I'm going. I had never been there. And so I really didn't have a sense of what it was like. You know, I didn't, now kids go on these college tours. That's smart. I didn't do any of that. I just was like, I've heard these schools are good. I'm going to apply to them. I got into Berkeley. That's where I'm going. So when I first got to Berkeley, I really had no sense of, you know, what it was going to be like, how big it was. I guess I knew it was big, but. When you just said that you would advise your kids differently, is that the advice you'd give them either to visit or to be more thoughtful? I'm just, I'm curious as to if you knew then what you know now sort of thing. To think about it at all. I thought about it in terms of like, you know, academic rigor and prestige, right? That was my one lens that I was deciding on. I think that, and maybe my experience sort of clouds or or gives me a bias in terms of what I would encourage them to think about. But I really didn't think about size at all. And I didn't think about sort of the urban campus where you're integrated with the city versus something that's more sort of off on its own. You know, who knows whether any of those things would have made a difference, but ultimately I really was not happy at Berkeley. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what I should have. How you could have prevented that from happening. It is really interesting. And we'll talk about this more when we get to the part where you go to law school. I love this podcast for so many reasons, but people will see you now, particularly law students, you know, senior counsel at Foley. So you must have had everything totally figured out your entire life. I just think it's really helpful for people to hear. And we are actually getting some college students that'll tune in. And I think if there's high school students listening, it's their parents making them listen. (laughs) But to have someone say, because I know for most of us, it's, or many of us, it's achieve, achieve, achieve if you can. You may or may not have some context around college. And for some people, it's like, well, there's a college, I'll go to that one. And then for other people, maybe it was a far more thoughtful process. But I always think it's interesting to, to listen, to hear what people did. But so you go to Berkeley, you didn't love it. What was your major? I was a history major after many iterations of different choices. And ultimately, I ended up there because those were the classes I liked. And I was tired of trying to sort of force myself to major in something that I ultimately had no interest in. So I went in thinking I would be pre-med. Organic chemistry sort of wiped that off of my to-do list, as I think it does for many people. 
you know, I had this plan and maybe that was part of the achieve, achieve, achieve plan. Right. And then I thought, oh, no, this isn't going to work. So then I switched to, gosh, I don't even know, economics or something. Didn't love that. But all the while I was sort of taking history classes because I liked them and I thought they were interesting. And so then ultimately I just said, well, forget it. I'm just going to major in this and I'll figure out what I'm going to do with my life later. How curious to focus on something you're interested in. That's another theme of the show. We'll see how much it comes out with your story is if you can align yourself with the practice you're at least interested in, <laughs> things tend to go a little better. But okay, so you get you know, your degree in history. What was the plan? There was not a real concrete plan. I will say that. The plan at the time was like graduate and figure out what I'm doing. And that was Bay Area. First of all, when I lived in Berkeley, I always wanted to live in San Francisco. I could see it from my dorm room and I would just look out the window and say, I don't want to be over there. I want to be over here. I want to be over there. And so as soon as I could move to San Francisco, I did. So after I graduated, moved to San Francisco, and it was like 2000, essentially, and it was the tech boom. I mean, I know there's another one. So one of the tech booms, but things were really booming them. So I got a job in tech like everybody did in San Francisco in those days. So it wasn't necessarily the plan, but that's just sort of how it worked out. So I ended up doing, not because I had any background in it, website development. And ultimately, and so I worked for a small startup called CCBN that did like financial reporting and hosting of websites. They got bought by Thompson Roy, which is now Thompson Reuters by then, like back then was Thompson Financial. So I, by the time I left Thompson, I stayed there for gosh, eight years, maybe nine. And um, I was managing a team of website developers and my team was in India, the Philippines, California, and Boston. Wow. So it really is remarkable that you're sitting in a Detroit <laughs> office of a law firm right now. So I will not make you recount eight years of working in a, in a different industry, but I am curious. So how do seeds get planted? How does this transition take place that you subsequently end up going to law school? Can I already, I see you in a parallel universe having not done that. Like I said, it was never really the plan. I kind of got to the point in my career at Thompson where I had ended up down this more technical track than I ever really intended. And I always like, you know, I did well in math or whatever. It, it's not that I was against that, but it just sort of happened. You know, it, my career there sort of happened to me and I was along for the ride. At one point, I sort of was taking stock of my career and what it had transpired and thinking if I want to advance in what I'm currently doing, and if I wanted to get to the next level and be a director or senior director, I really had to have more technical background. So I needed to either go to school and get, I don't know, a computer science degree or something more than I had, or I had to figure something else out. Hey, it got you there. It did get you somewhere. It got you eight years down the road and managing a team and all over the world. You know, I've just sort of let this happen. I should think about what I want to do, because if I want to stay here, I need to take some steps to make that achieve trajectory work. Or if I don't want to do that, then I should figure out what I want to do. And so I remember going to dinner with my husband in San Francisco and talking about what I should do and what I wanted to do. And that's where the idea of law school came up. And even at that time, it was not be a labor and employment lawyer. I was interested at the time in um, sort of urban revitalization, urban development. 
And so I thought, well, I could go work for like a city development department. But if I had a law degree, that makes that easier. And I could also do other things. And so I decided to go to law school. And I have to unpack this just a little bit more because I'm, I'm envisioning this conversation. It's at, what, Maybe you're at dinner and you're telling him, hey, I'm, I'm really thinking if I stay where I am, I should go back to school. I see where this goes. And eventually it's like, but if I'm going to go back to school anyway, I might as well go to because I'm more there's this other thing I'm interested in. And then you kind of leave the restaurant with like a whole different plan than what you thought. I mean, that's why I remember that dinner of thousands of dinners that we went to in San Francisco, because my life from that point really changed. And I went from, you know, working in tech in San Francisco to right turn to, you know, taking the LSAT and applying to law schools and going to law school. So that's what happens then. You have to study for the LSAT. You take the LSAT. You start applying. You're in California. So in terms of where am I going to go? Like, we know where you went, but how did that transpire? When I transferred to U of M. So my first year, I actually went to Santa Clara University. And I knew that, and no offense to Santa Clara, if <laughs> I don't imagine that anyone outside of Foley is listening to this, but I spent my first year at Santa Clara. I knew from the minute I got into Santa Clara that I wanted to transfer. And that's really, it's not a knock to Santa Clara, but it is in the Bay Area. There's so many good law schools and where you go to school in this industry really matters. You know, so there's Stanford, there's Berkeley, there's Davis, there's Hastings, there's all these other schools that are better. And it's hard to get a job. And in that time, it was like, you know, 2008, 2009, when the legal market was rough. And I knew if I stayed at Santa Clara, I'd have a harder time getting a job. So as soon as I got into Santa Clara, I knew I wanted to transfer. So after my first year, I applied to transfer. And this is where we get to Detroit, because my husband's actually from Michigan. And so, and I remember when, you know, we first got together telling my friends like, well, I mean, I'm not going to move to Michigan. Let's be serious. So when I applied to transfer, I applied to a few places and University of Michigan was one of them because the long-term plan of our family was someday we're going to want to buy a house and we're not going to be able to do that in San Francisco. And his family's all here and it'll be an easier sort of better life for buying a house, having kids, starting you know, stage two. So I applied to Michigan, honestly, thinking I probably wouldn't get in, but throwing it out there and thinking, well, this, you know, we want to get back there eventually, this could be one route. So then when I got into Michigan, it was a surprise, I think, to both of us. And it was fast, you know, so it was okay, this long term plan of someday we'll move to Michigan, because neither one of us wanted to leave San Francisco, because we loved it. But it was, yeah, we're moving like now. So we moved in the course of like two or three weeks. We were, I was at OCI before I even stepped foot on Michigan's campus. Oh, you're right. Because I forgot about the timing because you'd already finished your first year and you had to do that. And also I wanted to go back to something you said about schools and I think overall about how legal works and the importance of the rank of the law school. So I hope there's no offense taken by by Santa Clara or any other universities that are outside of you know the top, say, 20 law schools. But what you're really speaking to, I think, are are the realities of particularly, maybe by this point you thought about it, so I'm not sure, particularly if you're looking to go to a larger law firm, the realities are still that these firms, including Foley, do tend to draw from the top schools in the country. And I and I just want to pull that out because we do get law students who listen to this or people contemplating law school. And Often nobody really explains that dynamic. Of course, there's more to it than just what Felicia and I will unpack over the next like, you know, 30 seconds to a minute. 
but but that definitely is very true in our industry. More firms are starting to get a little bit better about recruiting outside of the top ranked schools, you know, specifically also through work done by someone like myself, because <laughs> there's diversity and inclusion impacts. But that's very true of the profession. And so I, you know, I think it was, you know, wise for you to be open to making that move to see what you could do to increase your odds of having more choices, particularly during what turned out to be an economic downturn. So just wanted to give all that context. So you, sorry, I'm laughing at the timing because I can't imagine transferring schools, but starting with OCI. So I moved to Michigan, but I don't even think we had in our apartment yet in Ann Arbor. So I was like staying with my in-laws for, you know, a week or two before we could move in. I went to OCI, but at that time, and you know, U of M's campus, the lawyers club was under construction. So they didn't do OCI on campus. It was at this Holiday Inn or something off the freeway. Now, well, now it's probably all virtual because of the pandemic, but it was definitely um, to paint a picture, which is probably the picture you were a part of as well. Michigan used to do on-campus interviewing at a hotel, not terribly far from the school. They would take like the mattresses and those would get like turned up against the wall. (laughs) It does feel a little bit strange to be interviewing in, in a hotel room. So they would make sure there were no beds anymore. You would sit and like potentially like almost like a club chair because they may not have the proper (laughs) chair. And I just remember perching at the very end of this chair. So I'm not like sucked back into like the upholstery, (laughs) just trying to seem professional. It was bizarre. And so there's, I don't know anyone who's there either. So I see all these other students in suits and I'm thinking like, Oh my gosh, all these people have it together. I like I don't even barely live in this state. I'm here at this Holiday Inn. The, the bed is up against the wall. They always put you in the upholstered chair. So you're like two feet lower than everyone else. And the desk level is like at your nose, you know, and you feel like you have your little manila folder and, and you look six years old or something. So that was OCI. I remember thinking it's so funny, like in every interview I had to explain, and I do this now to other poor students when I go to OCI. Do they ask you like, do you go to Michigan? One of the main questions was, what are you doing in Michigan? Because my resume was like California, 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 uh, top to bottom. Are you really going to stay here? Why? You know, and I think it's sad to me because it's sort of a knock on Detroit, which I think is awesome to say, you know, there's not a reason why a person would just want to move here and be here. That's the implication, right? But in every single interview, I had to say, you know, my husband is from Michigan. We're here permanently. Yes, I'm interviewing here on purpose. I want to be in Detroit. And I only interviewed at Detroit firms. I knew I didn't want to be anywhere else. There was no other plan. So luckily, one of those was Foley and Lardner. And, you know, I had all my callbacks and chose fully from there. But it was a strange experience to have never even gone to the school at all and to be at OCI in this state that I had probably been to, you know, six or seven times. Well, and also what you raise is an important question that a lot of law students worry about, which is my geographical tie. Because for you, you really were getting asked that because the optics of your resume. But I also do think most career services at law schools were sort of put the fear in the students of like, you better explain to this firm why you want to be there because they don't want you just kind of come in to have fun with them for the summer and then, you know, going to the city you really want to live in. But it's funny because I've seen law students who almost take that fear like too far where I was like, they just want a couple of sentences. They don't need 
1,200 words. And also with international students, I'm like, you literally don't have ties to anywhere in this country. (laughs) So we're going to have to make do with what you have. But it's true. But I do think an earnest explanation, but anything, and this is the former recruiter coming out of me just to give a little bit of value here. You should be well-practiced in that response. It's like a three to five sentence thing. If you start rambling and get weird and you talk too much, now you're putting nervous energy all over it and people will think you're not telling the truth. But just practice it. You're in, you're out. You move on to the next thing. And that sounds like it's what you did, but yet you definitely got that question every single time. And I had someone, I don't think it was at Foley, someone tell me in a callback, listen, people are going to be skeptical of you because of your resume. And so if you're really serious about being in Michigan, this is your obstacle. And I think that's what you're saying is 100% true. I think it's more true in some markets than others. Like I doubt in New York, people are saying, why are you coming here? Because everybody wants to be in New York. Of course you want to be in New York. But I think particularly with smaller markets, they're like, why are you taking advantage of us in some way? Especially with U of M, because it's a you know top 10 law school. And people who go there oftentimes are looking at New Yorkers, Chicago or other markets. And we don't want to feel like we're your safety, that you don't really want to be in Detroit but you'll throw Detroit on there in case you can't get into one of the big cities. And so we try to make sure that people are serious about being in Detroit. And we're going to talk about Detroit and we're going to talk about Foley, but I do just want to ask, so then what was your experience getting used to being at Michigan? As a, You're not the first person I've had on who's transferred. There's been a few, but not many, although now I can't recall. Was there an adjustment? I didn't even ask about your adjustment to law school in general, but any general comments on either your experience in law school overall or in particular transferring to Michigan? Answer your question about law school in general. I think working for so long gave me a huge, huge advantage because I was, first of all, I was so far removed from school that I wasn't sort of like burned out on school at all, you know, and I was used to working 40, 50 plus hours a week. And so going to two hours of classes a day and then studying for another six was easy because I just treated it like my job. And Santa Clara, I get to sit outside in the sun under a palm tree and read a book. I mean, yeah, and contemplate legal jurisprudence. Like I have nothing else I need to do. I loved law school because it was such a change from work. And because I had worked for so long, not only was it like interesting and fun, the hours didn't were not daunting at all. And so I think that, in my opinion, it's probably much harder to go right from undergrad because you're in the grind of school and that's what you know. And it's just more of that, you know. But I so I think people who work for a while beforehand just have a different, they come at it from a different perspective. And it's helpful. I went straight through. I had two weeks off, but I became friends with people who had worked for a while. And so I think for anyone going to law school, more and more people are taking at least a few years off beforehand. And I, and I think that's right, but plenty aren't. And so if you're one of those people, I would just advise that you may not have the best habits potentially, <laughs> because I do, I think there's more structure that somebody who's worked for a while brings and may treat it more just like a job. And that's just something to consider. Are there ways where you could have a little bit more structure in how you study and when you study? Because if you just kind of went straight through undergrad doing stuff whenever, 2 a.m. in the library, you can keep doing that in law school. But is it serving your best interest is a different question. Well, it's funny because by like 5, 6 o'clock, I was done 
you know, I wasn't studying until two o'clock in the morning. I just went into library at eight o'clock, whether I had early classes or not. And I just spent all day at school and I read what I was supposed to read. And so I was never, you know, nobody loves finals or whatever, but I was never really stressed out <laughs> in law school because I know it's not easy to keep that structure, but if you're used to it and you can just kind of keep that structure, then it wasn't so bad. So I really liked it. And I, I had this idea going in. I was basically 10 years older than everybody that I was in law school with. And my perspective going in was, you know, I'm not really here to make friends and that's fine. I'm here to, you know, treat it like it's my job and I'll, I have friends outside of this and and that's fine. Ultimately, I made some of my best friends in law school at Michigan because there were a group of transfer students and there were, you know, it just takes those one or two people who are sort of like the connector people who bring everybody together. And we had some of those. And so I ended up with this really tight, really great group of friends that I'm still friends with in at Michigan that I really didn't anticipate having because I just thought, you know, I'm so much older and I'm, and I'm married and whatever. And but it turned out great. Now they're all sort of where I was 10 years ago. I mean, obviously, we're all 10 years out of law school, but they're getting married and having kids. And I was doing all that back then. I love that. You see me smiling. I'm like, that is very heartwarming. And then, you know, a fellow member of your practice group, also my colleague when I was at Michigan is Larry Perlman. So he's been on the podcast if people want to listen to that, but he was in that similar situation. So people want to hear someone else talk about having done something else for a decade before law school, which for him was having been a medical doctor. But what's funny with that age difference that you're speaking to is there were things going on in his life when we were in law school that I at 24 didn't appreciate were a big deal. So 10 years later, I'm like, so wow, you had a baby in law school, your second one. So I now understand that was hard. Didn't know that when I was 24. I was kind of like, see you at class on Monday. <laughs> so 10 years later, I'm talking to him and his wife. And I'm like, so I hope I didn't seem kind of insensitive back then. I had no idea. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone really knows. I was pregnant my 3L year. So people knew, you know, because by the time finals came around in April, I was like the huge pregnant person waddling around campus. But I was just sort of in a different place. And we used to try and hang out with like the law school students and they were off at like Rick's or whatever. And I just banned myself from Rick's. I just, I, you know, I'm 30, whatever. I can't go to Rick's. So let's talk Foley. And I'm not going to unpack your whole summer experience, but I would, because we got to get to your practice experience. And I haven't even mentioned this yet, but I'm sure I mentioned it in the intro to the show which I'll record separately later, you are also the new chair of our associates committee. So we will be talking about those two things for sure before this episode ends. But why Foley? So first, hoping you had other choices as well, but how did you decide on Foley and Lardner? Maybe a few few sentences about your summer experience, then let's dig into the the Foley and your legal practice part of your, of your journey. I was lucky enough to have a f- several other options where I got callbacks and I got offers in, all in Detroit. And I think I had this perception, you know, before you go to law school, everyone sort of warns you about big law. And I had had friends who'd gone to law school and said, don't go work for a big firm, you'll hate it, it's hell, whatever. And I knew multiple people who had gone to work at big law firms and left and been unhappy. I sort of tried to go into it with eyes wide open. And as I interviewed at the various firms in town that at the time Foley was the only national firm. Now there's another national firm here, or maybe a couple who only have a few people, but at the time Foley was the only national firm. And so I really thought going in that Foley would be and feel like the most big law in quotes place and that it would feel very sort of formal and, you know, all those things that you hear that go along with big law. 
And it really was the least of all the places that I interviewed. And there were other places where it was very like mahogany and everyone was in a suit and no one would speak with the assistants. You know, they'd pass each other in the hall. No one's saying hello and you just get the vibe. And Foley was really the least like that to my surprise going in. You know, I just had this preconceived notion that because it was the national law firm, it would be like that. And it really was the least like that. Very doors open. Everyone was friendly. I mean, you know them. It's, you know, it's Phil Phillips and Daljeet was the OMP at the time and John Birmingham and everyone's so nice. And it really had the feel almost of the startup that I worked for back in the early 2000s, where it had a sort of entrepreneurial feel and friendly and a little more casual. No one was in a suit. And I just instantly sort of felt the culture in the callbacks that was very different from the other local places. And that drew me. Obviously, comp was also a draw because in a small market, as the national firm, comp was better than anywhere else. So that was one aspect. But really, it was the feel of the place because if it had felt like I thought it would, the comp wouldn't have mattered. That makes sense. Also, you have your scientific method of deciding, which I think you mentioned the word vibes. There is something just about the vibe of the place. But but I think that's true. And, you know, you've said things that many other podcast guests have said, but also to the law students out there, you're going to be reading rankings and all kinds of things to try to figure out firms. But there is a lot to be said from just what it feels like when you meet the people who work in that office, because that's who you are going to work with. And then you also said the word national. And I think a lot of people know what that means, but just in case there's someone who doesn't. So with large law firms, you may be regional, meaning you have maybe a handful of offices and just, you know, sort of one part of the country, national offices across the country, and then international and fully now I don't know if it was then, now is international, as we also have um, three offices abroad. But those tend to be sort of like the sizes of these big law firms everyone's considering. So we're going to fast forward to you started at Foley. How did you figure out your practice group? I'm going to guess that actually the seeds were planted when you were a summer associate. But how did you settle on labor and employment? I was interested in labor and employment and had taken labor and employment separately at U of M and liked it. But it wasn't sort of a set plan, as I'm talking, sort of sensing a theme in my own life, no set plan. As I was a summer, I knew I wanted to do litigation because those were just the classes I enjoyed taking. And when I talked to my business law friends about the classes they were taking, like anatomy of a deal and other things, I just had, you know, no offense, zero interest. And I thought that sounds terrible. So I knew I wanted to be in litigation. And there were two slots in the Detroit office for litigation. And so the other summer was another U of M grad, also another transfer. His name's Nick, who I'm still friends with. So he and I summered, we were both sort of the litigation slot. And um, there was a labor and employment one and a general commercial litigation slot that we knew. I don't think we knew that going in, but by the end of the summer, we knew there were two slots. And so I really liked the labor and employment team. I mean, the team here in Detroit is amazing. You know, it's Phil Phillips, John Birmingham, Jeff Kopp. They're great. And I like the subject matter just a lot better than I liked commercial litigation. And during the summer, I had a chance to work on all kinds of different things. Great pro bono projects with the Innocence Clinic, some government contracts stuff, some commercial litigation. I worked on the closing of a deal with someone in a business law group where I stayed in the office until two o'clock in the morning. And I thought, 
I've made the right choice. So I knew that by the end of the summer, I knew I wanted to do labor and employment because the subject matter to me was just much more interesting. I just liked it that when I was in law school, I briefly thought about doing criminal law and labor and employment. You know, it's still about people. And so to me, that was I could sort of relate to it more and I enjoyed it more. And so I asked uh, for the labor and employment slot at the end of the summer and I got it. All right. There's a bunch of stuff I want to follow up on there. One thing is Phil Phillips, who's also been on the show. And so for listeners, Phil Phillips, labor and employment partner, also office managing partner of Detroit. He was, I think, a prosecutor for a little bit. And I asked him why labor and employment. And he said, after doing that sort of work, it was the only practice area that could keep his interest. (laughs) You know, maybe he's being a little tongue in cheek there, but I thought that was really funny. And you almost said something similar. We've had that conversation where it's like, it's still about people. And so it's, there's some sort of tie. And actually, not to cut you off, there's another member of our group in Detroit, Jacqueline Hadick. She was a prosecutor also, and now she's doing labor and employment civil litigation. So. Well, and when people ask about my own professional journey, because I was a commercial litigator to labor and employment, actually to recruiter, to diversity and inclusion, I'm like, the through line is I've been trying to get closer to people. And then I learned I just didn't even need the legal practice part. And I could just focus on the people part. But also some things you said about picking your practice area, because there is this, this mix. And I think when law students look back, they'll often see you did heavily lean to one area of interest. Like in retrospect, you're like, oh, it's pretty clear litigation was for me, a pretty clear corporate. The wild cards are one, the practice areas you're just never exposed to in law school. So there could be something that's great that you just never saw. But then all of that also has to dovetail with the firm having availability in that, just having availability to staff somebody of that practice area. So it's a little bit, it's an art, I would say more than a a science, because you want to figure out what interests you. But there's just also economic realities of where can we add headcount. And I often, I think law students will forget that part. And some firms will be, you know, depending on the size of the office and the size of the summer class might say, what are you interested in? We will make it work. But others are, are like, okay, we have room here. And that will just depend on the firm that you're in. So you kind of showed, you illustrated all of that. But now you've been at Foley for, you know, closing in on a decade. So we will not march through every year of your time at the firm. But I would love just some reflections on the early years and learning to lawyer. And then I want to dig into what your practice is like today. So yeah, you start as a junior. How do you learn to be a labor and employment lawyer? I will say, and for law students who are listening, I think without exception, I have not met the person yet who will say your first year or two years or three years is easy. It's hard. And I think it's especially hard for the type of person who goes to law school, who is, as we talked about in the beginning, sort of achieve, achieve, achieve. And academic success typically comes somewhat easy, you know, not without hard work, but you're used to being, you know, the top, right? And it is hard when you first start because you don't know anything. And even though I took employment and labor at U of M, it really doesn't mean anything. And you start from scratch. And I remember in one of the courts here, the Wayne County Circuit Court, they make you file something called a precipice to get a hearing on the calendar of the court. And I remember one time one of the partners asked me, you know, just make sure we get the precipice on file. And 
I thought, I don't even know what that word is. I've never heard it before in my life. And I had to go to my assistant and say, like, what is he talking about? What is this? You know, so that's where you start. You don't even know what you don't know. And it's hard. It is a steep climb. And it's a little bit of an ego blow, I think, for everybody, because we're used to just like coming in and rocking it. And it's hard for the first few years. I also had the added, I won't say burden because she's the best, but my daughter was born right before finals of my 3L year. And so I had a little baby when I was taking the bar. And when I started fully, I had a six-month-old baby. So it also was hard to try and figure out, you know, I had worked before, but it was not as demanding as this profession. And I had never done it with kids before. So my first few years were also sort of figuring that out which is also not easy. And it's a learning curve, right? You're trying to balance. And I still am. It's not that I have something figured out. I'm trying to balance my life outside of work with my work life, trying to do well, trying to not mess anything up too bad at work or at home, trying to spend enough uh, time and attention on both things. And that's a challenge. And I think that's just an ongoing challenge that is never really solved, but it's just part of it. You see me nodding because I do think that's right. You know, I haven't surveyed all of the professions, but I think that is a unique thing about being a lawyer, particularly now when you come out, you're being paid a tremendous amount of money. You don't know what you're doing. I've actually never heard of the word. Did you say precipice? Is that what that was? (laughs) I've never heard of that today. And I did litigate for a while as a perfect example. And you find yourself or you're like, all right, they're assuming I'm competent. Do I ask him what a precipice is? If I was to find a precipice, where would I find that? And figuring out what's the question for the partner? What's the question for your assistant? What's the question you should ask people that are also your level or a few years ahead of you? And it's like you said, it's an ego blow and it takes some time to get competent I would call it three to five years to even sort of feel like you know what's going on. I'll often tell junior lawyers that learning curve, if it was a chart, the line is going straight up. And then maybe in in two years, it'll start to level off a little bit. And then you have the wild card also throwing in an infant. I do remember I was maybe like a second year and a woman in my office who's now a partner said, you don't feel like you know what you're doing until your fifth year. And at the time, I just thought, am I going to feel this way for five, three more years? I can't handle it. But I think, you know, in retrospect, I think that's right. It's not that you don't learn anything. You're learning things along the way. But Every day, every week, every month, there's something you don't know how to do and you're trying to figure it out. And by the time you get to year five, I mean, there's still things that I don't know how to do when I'm figuring out. I think that's... If it's going well, you will continue to get matters of first impression because it's, Felicia, you did so well with that deposition prep. Like, why don't you take the deposition? You did so well with the deposition. Do you want to help me second chair this trial? Like, there's always something. And I think it takes... I hate to say, like a good 10 or 15 years to be like, I've seen most things before. And that's why I think a lot of 15-year-plus lawyers are actually starting to have fun because they've learned the rule book. They know when they can throw out the rule book. But before that, you're trying to figure it out. And I hope that doesn't, I hope people find, like, take solace in the fact that they're not alone in that feeling versus it being depressing. (laughs) But we're not trying to scare anyone. But I think it's if you feel like you're the only one who feels that way, it's a really lonely feeling. And I know multiple people who have felt, you know, myself included in those first few years, 
am I cut out for this? You know, have I made a giant mistake? I don't know if I can do this. But I think once you realize that literally everyone feels that way, it's not a you issue, right? It's just a steep learning curve. And it's just the growing pains. And I'm now going to connect it to what you said about the culture, particularly of Foley's Detroit office. You also, it sounds like, had resources to help and people you could ask because you didn't feel like it was a stuffy place where you couldn't ask questions. But it's still hard even when you do feel like well-supported and that people are approachable and doors are open. But it makes you happy you pick some place with that vibe is what we were talking about. I think it's essential because you have to have the staff here is we all would not survive without them. And I cannot tell you how many times my assistant back then and my assistant now have just saved me, you know, time and time again, keep me organized, keep me on track and are the sort of unsung heroes, right? And then you also have your fellow associates who are down in the trenches with you. And it's so important to be able to have those people where you can go in their office and close the door and just say, you know, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. Say, what is a precipice? So that five years later, you can be working with the first year and say, just make sure you get the precipice on file. Or maybe you'll remember and say, and you probably don't know what that is, let me tell you. Well, tell us about your practice today. So you have developed, so you've developed skills. What what are they? What do, what do you, um, clients tend to, you know, work with Felicia O'Connor on? Yeah, so I do a whole range of labor and employment counseling and litigation and training for clients. So there's one last thing I wanted to say about what we were talking about before we move on to that, and then I'm happy to, is I think part of you know, you are always growing and you do always have that new challenge, that thing you don't know how to do. Even just this last year, I've done a lot of labor arbitrations where I think I had done maybe one before this year and it's daunting. But I think what happens is you spend so many years figuring out how to do something that you don't know how to do, that there's this resilience that's built up where you then get a sense of, I can figure this out. I don't know how to do this but I can do it. I'll figure it out because you do that over and over. So when I first started in labor and employment, I've always been in the labor and employment group and doing really 90 to 100% labor and employment at any one time, which is how I like it and try to keep it. So in the beginning, you know, as a more junior associate in labor and employment, because the cases generally are lower value than these huge commercial cases, typically it's just you and a partner. So in some ways, it's so great because you have access to, you know, you're the first one writing the brief and you're defending depositions at a much earlier stage in labor and employment than I think in other practice groups, because there's not a million documents to review. You can just do it yourself. That that was my experience. I remember my first year I was asked to go defend a deposition. I had never been to a deposition before. And so it was one of those things like, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to figure it out. And so in the beginning, it was much more, you're doing sort of the initial draft of everything. You're writing the answer and sending it to the partner for review. And I was very lucky to be working for partners, the three that I mentioned, and, and in labor and employment generally in other offices, who are very open to like hearing your feedback and letting you have client contact. So from the the beginning, I was emailing clients directly. I was talking to the partners on my cases about what the case strategy is, which was really great. But in those first years, you know, you're sort of the doer of the first draft of the motion, the defend the deposition, etc. As my career has gone along, now I do much more client counseling where clients will call me directly, even if they're not necessarily my clients. You know, it may be the partner's big institutional client, but I have the contact, they know me, they call me with questions. So uh, we do a lot of, and I do a lot of client counseling one-off. Hey, we have this 
problem with this employee? Can we terminate them? What should we do? Those types of questions. So it's less litigation focused. I mean, I still have cases and that's probably the bulk of my workload, but it might be more now almost 50-50 with counseling. And we also do internal investigations, which I really like. So if a client gets a complaint and they can't handle it internally, they'll outsource it to us. So that's not really litigation either, but those are fun. So I like doing that and I really enjoy doing the counseling and I really enjoy also doing um, client training. So we'll go in and do like sexual harassment training or implicit bias training or FMLA and uh, employee leave training because it's complicated. So I really enjoy doing those things too. And that's become more and more part of my practice rather than just litigation. I mean, the litigation is great too, but I'd say it's probably 50-50 at this point between the counseling and the actual cases. Well, and that really is, it sounds to me like your practice is a pretty full spectrum employment practice. Maybe not a ton. You did mention some labor. It's not like you're doing like a ton of union work, but I think everything you just mentioned is really what you, you know, tend to see L&E attorneys do. I love that you mentioned the training because that is where I sometimes get to work with the labor and employment group, which is also very fun. And I also think what's unique about L&E is that counseling aspect. I'm certain, you know, many other practices have that element, but labor and employment is a bit unique in that you have that client who calls you and says, hey, somebody walked in today and X happened, which you're not so much going to get where someone's like, hey, can you just advise potentially on how to deal with this merger? Like, right, like that's like a full scope. (laughs) But whereas they really need to know, like, should we fire them now? Should we absolutely not fire them? Like, should we train them? Because we don't want to expose ourselves to liability, which is, I think, just a really interesting aspect. Just get called with questions. Back to you said, you're close to the people. You got to people. You wanted people. You got people. (laughs) Well, we're going to switch gears a bit. We could talk for much longer about the ins and outs of labor employment. But as our time draws to a close, I would be remiss to not talk to you about Foley's Associates Committee. So to set it up a little bit, um, for those who don't know, Foley has a really robust Associates Committee with associate representatives from Foley offices across the U.S. And you may fill in some of these gaps for me, but I believe you all, I think it's monthly and pre-pandemic, it was, I think, at least quarterly in person and really do have the ear of Foley leadership. And a lot of the, you know, I think really neat things the firm has done over the past few years have come from listening to the Associates Committee, but you recently became the Associates Committee chair. And so maybe we just dive in with either you fixing something I just said, because I may have messed up some aspect of what you all do, but maybe talk about um, the importance of the Associates Committee and what it is and actually what your role is now as chair of the committee. The Associates Committee is great, and it's been such an important part of my Foley experience in the last few years. So you're absolutely right. The committee has representatives from every office. Smaller offices have one. Bigger offices might have up to three representatives. And I think it's really unique at Foley because other firms, I think, have associates committees, you know, and I haven't worked anywhere else. So I'm not trying to drag down anybody, anybody other associates. I think the amount of respect and input and connection to leadership that Foley's Associates Committee has, I really do think that's unique. And just quick example before I turn it back to you, my second day at, at Foley was me flying from Chicago to Houston to attend the Associates Committee meeting and sitting in with Jay Rothman, our CEO, and Stan Jasmine, our managing partner, in session, essentially, with the Associates Committee for a good, I'd say, three or four hours of that day was just the Associates Committee meeting with the senior most leadership at the firm, just by way of example. 
I have the sense that it, it truly is unique in the sense that, first of all, there's a sort of a two-way communication flow happening where the management of the firm and Jay and Stan in particular, and also Jen Patton is really instrumental in this as well. She, um, who's the chief legal talent officer, she and Jay and Stan are very transparent about, you know, the strategy of the firm, the direction of the firm, the performance of the firm. And so that information flows from them to us. And we then, the associates committee, flow that information from us to the associates in each office. And then in another sense, there's a flow of information the other way, where firm management is truly interested, and it's not just lip service, to understand the perspective of associates and senior counsel, what's working, what's not working, what could be improved, and to get feedback on specific things or just generally. And so we also take feedback from associates and senior counsel in all the offices. You know, we have our meetings, we discuss what may be trends in certain areas. And then we flow that information up to firm leadership. And they really listen. Your description of that meeting is absolutely the way it works. We meet monthly with just the associates committee to discuss various issues. And we don't wait for just the monthly meeting to talk about things. There's sort of a constant flow of emails among the representatives of the associates committee discussing issues. And then we have our monthly meetings. And then quarterly, we meet with firm, very senior leadership, Jay and Stan, in person. Well, during the pandemic, for a few of those, we had to do virtual. But I think everybody likes doing it in person when we can. So quarterly, we meet in person. And we have really a half a day session with Jay and Stan, where we, the Associates Committee sets the agenda of what we want to learn and what we want to communicate to firm management and what we want to understand back from firm management. And they are so responsive and engaged, and it really is invaluable. And I think it it truly shows that that culture of fully, you know, I've worked other places, and, and maybe I shouldn't have said where I worked before, where there's this lip service to, you know, our people are our best asset. And that's not always true everywhere. You know, everyone says that, but here... That is true. And the firm really walks the walk in, in addition to talking the talk. So earlier this year, at the end of summer, September, I was asked to be the chair of the Associates Committee. I was really honored and surprised. And so now I'm the chair, and it's great. I mean, I just think the Associates Committee is one of the most valuable things that Foley does, and it, it works so well, and honored to be a part of it. Congratulations on, on becoming chair. It's amazing. And just also, I will often joke, but this is based in, in fact that, you know, sometimes Sometimes associates committees are more so tasked with like, what type of coffee should we have at the firm? And, you know, maybe you guys talk about that too, but there's just been a number of things since I've joined that I've seen come out of the associates committee from recommendations. One quick example is Foley having an in-house executive coach, which is different from say, just like a, you know, career counselor or true. She's a Georgetown trained executive coach. I know that was something that was the associates committee inquired about a few years ago, the firm made it happen. And there's a lot of other things like that. But like you said, very much speaks to that importance of people, importance of the experience that everyone is having, which is just the stuff that sort of makes my heart sing, given that I'm a diversity and inclusion professional. Like that's like bedrock stuff that Foley's had in place for a very long time. But anyway, as we do finally wind down, I'll ask you my two final, final questions, which are one, is there anything you want to mention you haven't had an opportunity to? And then my last substantive question is just, your quick general overall advice to someone either early in their career or contemplating a legal career. 
There's not anything that I didn't mention and probably some things that I didn't (laughs) intend on mentioning that we talked about anyway. In terms of advice, if someone starting a legal career, I will say that I'll go back to the discussion we had about those first few years where it is really challenging, but I think you learn so much in those first few years and resiliency is one of the things that you learn. And one of the things that has sort of kept me going through all that is really the connections you make at the place where you work, your associate peers who are there to talk to you when, you know, it's late and you're all working on a project. And not that the partners aren't also working late, they are, but but I've had such a great experience here at Foley where everyone is really interested in helping associates and senior counsel and even other partners with their career and trying to make it an enriching experience for the people who work here, because ultimately that benefits the firm. And so I just think that, you know, there's challenges those first few years and just know you're not alone in them and you really develop a strong resiliency to sort of, you know, tackle anything once you figure out what a precipice is. Once you figure out what a precipice is, that is a perfect note to end on. My final, final question for every guest is if people have questions or comments, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Of course. Yep, absolutely. I'm up there. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, Felicia. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.